This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. If you're listening on the day this episode drops, happy Thanksgiving, and I'm glad to be part of your holiday. Today, I have a few guests I'm really glad to feature. Jazz vocalist Jose James, Canadian folk singer Bruce Coburn, and Americana band Twangtown Paramours. As of 12.01 a.m. Friday morning, the gates will be officially open to Christmas music. Some radio stations switched to the all-Christmas format before Halloween, and many more followed suit throughout November. Any that haven't gone yet switch on Black Friday because all the other holidays have had their moment in the spotlight. If, like me, you find the public offerings a little conventional, I've got something for you. I have created the 12 Songs of Christmas Radio in Spotify, with more than 20 hours of Christmas music compiled for your listening pleasure. The standards are there, as are many songs by guests that have appeared on the show over the last three years. But there are also a lot of non-canonical Christmas songs there too, from all across the musical spectrum. It's designed to be fun and to fit into your holiday season the way the all Christmas stations do. All you have to do is click shuffle to get the radio experience minus the commercials and repetition of the best-known songs. You can find it by searching Spotify for the title, 12 Songs of Christmas Radio, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'm also still giving away my listeners-only Christmas mix, which is down to a more manageable 90 or so minutes. If you want to download that, email me at alex at myspiltmilk.com and I'll fire it over. I really enjoy this mix and think you will too. I'll also try to turn you on to other cool mixes that I run across during the season. And one that I quite enjoy right now is Nindy Collection, XO for the Holidays, Volume 10. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now to the show. Jazz vocalist Jose James positions himself as the jazz vocalist for the hip-hop era. But he stays in the more traditional lane on his new Christmas album, Merry Christmas from Jose James. On it, he sings with the traditional jazz trio that includes Aaron Parks on piano. That format, the musicality of the players, and James' performances give the album a timeless feel, and that's just one of the things we talked about recently. Because the singers who sang swinging versions of Christmas classics in many ways shaped the way we think of those songs today, I wanted to talk to James about how he, as a contemporary singer, and we as contemporary audiences, relate to those classic versions. We'll start with his version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, then come back with the interview on the other side. A merry little Christmas Let your heart be light From now on our troubles Will be out of sight What came first? The idea of doing a Christmas album or the idea of doing a sort of a classic jazz quartet album? Oh, great, great question. Um, 
I think the idea of, I think they both came together because I did a, a duo show with Aaron Parks at Rockwood Music Hall. It was my last show before we moved to Amsterdam. And um, it, was, it was last winter. And it was so good. I mean, Aaron Parks is so gifted and he's so serious. Um, so the level, it wasn't like a like kitty Christmas show. You know, it was like a very like Aaron Parks, like this is super deep, like um, Bill Evans meets, you know, um, Tony Bennett kind of, that was the vibe. And I think, you know, if you know Aaron, like he's very, um, what's the word? He's, he has very high standards. So when he likes something, it means something. It's really like, wow, he's into it. And he, we finished the show and he was like, that was really, that was good actually, you know? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know, he was like, <laughs> and, and we kind of said like, maybe we should, we should do a Christmas album, you know? Cause this vibe is so good, you know? And he was referencing like, Bill Evans, I guess he played um, some Christmas songs, you know. So it was it already was kind of trending toward that like 1950s Miles Davis associated world. And when I thought about um, making the album, I knew it had to sort of live in that space. And it's it's I think of it as like Frank Sinatra sitting in with the Miles Davis quartet. You know, that's how I kind of conceptualized it. So the reason I ask was because the treatment is sort of so classic. And, you know, and and there was a time, obviously, where people made these kinds of sort of jazz versions that that it was kind of like what, you know, did did deciding what would be an interesting thing to do in this format and a kind of a classic thing to do with this musical format or what would be an interesting musical, interesting format for this musical idea? Mm. Well, I, I knew it had to be like LCR and I wanted to record the tape. And I like, I definitely was very specific. Um, and thankfully, since, you know, it's on my label, um, we just support whatever the artist wants. And, you know, it's the first time that I've proposed an idea to um, our engineer. Brian Bender. Mm -hmm. Sorry, now now I got the call. Ah, ah, it's, it's, ah. A, <laughs> um, it's the first time that I proposed an idea and he was like, uh, okay. I was like, hey man, we got to do like 1950s LCR panning, left, center, right. Like I was like drums. And I, I really spent a lot of time before I proposed it. I was like, drums have to be right. And, you know, blues and the abstract truth, Oliver Nelson, like that's the reference, the trio, you know, and I, I gave him like all this, like very, very specific. And he kind of like sat with it for a second and was like, I trust you. Like, let's, let's try this, you know, because he wasn't there either. Um, so I picked the studio and, and we really, we went in and, and for me, it's, it's a, it's, this is a great question that you're asking because it's kind of the heart of the, of the matter of the whole album. For me, the sound of Christmas really is that sound. You know, like when I when I listen to Frank Sinatra or Ben Crosby or Ella, 
you know, it's kind of like this, there's like the pop versions of, of the fifties and forties and fifties. And there's the jazz versions, but like you're saying, they're recorded essentially the same way. Cause you couldn't do anything else, you know, back right. then. Yeah. Um, so that to me just is the sound. It's the sound of jazz, but it's also the sound of Christmas in this interesting way. And, and I wanted that warmth of tape and I wanted that sort of like, there's just a certain quality that you can't describe, but you feel when everybody's in the room and they're cutting it together and it feels like a moment, you know, that is sort of captured for all time. And when I listen to the Christmas song, the Matt Cole version, that's what I feel, you know, and, and I did a lot of research on all of these songs and the different versions of the songs and, you know, how many times Nat Cole recorded that song and the whole thing with Capitol. And um, so I, I just ended up kind of saying, like, I don't want to make a, a trendy Christmas album. I want to make a timeless Christmas album. And Tali and I had written Christmas in New York already. So we had that. We'd been sitting on that for like three years. And so I knew that that would fit in. Um, to these, hopefully, to these, you know, Christmas classics in a cool way. Christmas time is coming through the air. Trees and lights and presents meant to share A gift is almost anything It's the joy that love can bring It's the smile on faces everywhere Let's light up the window after dark Build a funny snowman in the park To fully answer your question, the band is so hip, you know, Ben Williams and and Jarris, so they're not playing like the 50s. Everybody's playing very much like today, but captured in that way. So I thought it could work you know, to be totally honest, it was a, it was a risk, sure, a very expensive risk ah, that I took. Ah, and I'm very, ah, I'm very happy that it worked out. <laughs> yeah. ah, 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 ah. Was, was this your first time working in analog, working straight, working the tape? This was the first time com- going completely analog. Yeah. 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 So, and you recorded the whole album in one day, correct? Uh, basically a day and a half. Okay. Yeah. Was yeah. that was that an aesthetic choice, a just an artistic challenge, or a budgetary choice? It was a scheduled problem. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, we had we had three days, and I was like, oh, nice, luxurious three days, cool. And then some some things got moved, and some musicians weren't available, and all of a sudden it was this like nail biter, like. Oh, because half of the other day we were filming uh, a music video as well. So 
we really, the pressure was on me. Essentially we had one day to like really nail it. And, and we did, you know, and, and it's funny because that pressure actually worked in our favor. And I think you sort of have to have that pressure when you're recording the tape, because if you don't get it, if you don't, if there's nothing to capture, then there's nothing that comes across, you know, sure. but it, it definitely wasn't my original plan. <laughs> <for> <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> yeah. So, so how many, how many takes would you do on a song? Um, we did pretty much one or two takes. I don't think we did any more than three takes. I think there was like one song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which sounds, I think it's kind of the most modern sound. It was a little bit harder finding our way into that one because everything else was sort of like so like obvious, you know, like the Christmas song or Christmas in New York was kind of like, this is what it is. And I think Aaron came up with that intro that I think they came up with that as the outro and we ended up putting it on the intro too, to kind of make it this thing. So that, that one took a little bit longer, but when I say like, took a little bit longer with these guys that that means like an extra like 15 minutes i mean right they're so good <laughs> they just they're so good you know it's it's amazing and i and i have to say like working with aaron um he's such a perfectionist you know i i thought i was a kind of a perfectionist but i realized he's he's actually a perfectionist yeah, like yeah. he's and and to again to hear him say at the end of the session like this is really good like was a huge compliment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. You know, the part of the reason I ask is I always, one of the things I always think about with jazz recordings is that, you know, every time it's performed, it's fresh. Uh, unless, unless the musicians are hacking every time they go sure. to work, every time they go to play it, there's going to be something fresh in there. Mm. And so I would imagine that if you cut three versions uh, of any song in there, every song is going to have something worth keeping. And there's in every song in there is going to have, you know, un unless you literally someone just stumbles, each one of those could have been the keeper. Yeah. A and so, you know, I often, you know, realize or think about with a, with a jazz album, how often, you know, this is the, the last version, but not necessarily, you know, there is no authoritative version. There's no one version that absolutely nails everything perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, mm. When you were listening to these, what were you prioritizing as you were deciding which one to go with or decide when do I call it? When do we say we've, mm -hmm. we, we put enough time in on this one? Let's roll on. Great question. Um, I think I was prioritized the mood of a song, you know, and, Thankfully, nobody like messed up anything, <laughs> you know, um, and I think I think the, the choices that we made were honestly the ones where we came to the song with the most authenticity, you know, like we really I remember we did my favorite things, for example, and the first take was we did two takes and the album version is the second take and the first take is very like 
it's good, but it, it still feels a little bit indebted to Coltrane's version, obviously, because it's the version. And we weren't quite being ourselves, you know. And then when we all said, you know, that was good, but like, like let's try one more. Then everybody sort of said, okay, I'm going to like put my mark on this song now. And that's, and I could feel it happening. And I think that's kind of part of it too. It's like, I'm in the same room with these guys, um, trying not to like drop my coffee cup during their solo or something, you know? And to feel it just unfold and to kind of feel that the interplay between them, that's really what I want the listener to have. You know, I think that's what makes jazz so cool. Um, Cause like you said, it is that moment. So, you know, like on my favorite things, the way that Aaron Parks enters and kind of like just announces himself. I was like, man, I, I want the world to hear that. Not just me, you know, and that's, what's kind of cool about, being a producer um, and a label owner is that we can say, Hey, now we can, we can share and we can share part of our world in the way that we see fit, you know? Yeah. But I, I like what you're saying. That's a really cool idea. Like there is no definitive necessarily like version, you know? Yeah. Drops on roses, whiskers on kittens, rock up kettles and warm woolly mittens, brown paper packages tied up with string. These are a few of my favorite things. Twelve songs is sponsored by Car Floats. Reusable, removable fabric stickers for your car. Here in New Orleans, everybody has a costume box, if not closet. And Car Floats believes your car ought to be able to dress up or down according to the mood or season two. They have designs suitable for the upcoming holidays, but also ones that simply reflect your personal sense of style and whimsy. Tired of your CX-5 looking like everybody else's CX-5? Car Floats can help. And when you're ready for something different, you can peel them back off put them back on their paper backing, and save them until the next time you're ready to dress up your car. My daughter helped me put ghosts on my car for Halloween, and now that it's over, those stickers are back on their paper, rolled up, and stored until this time next year. Want to see what you can do for your car? Visit car-floats.com. Put 12 songs in the promo box, and that's the number 12, songs as one word in the promo box at checkout for 25% off on your first purchase car floats art in motion Next up is Canadian singer Bruce Coburn, who's celebrating 50 years in the business with a tour starting December 7th in Grass Valley, California. Coburn's folk-based music was a part of my teenage years in Southern Ontario, where he was a staple on FM radio. 
And when I lived in Toronto, we lived in the same neighborhood and hung out at the same cafe where he drank coffee and worked while I drank beer and played the jukebox. In the States, he's probably best known for the 1984 song, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, which helped launch a period where his folk rock not only had currency, but found like-minded collaborators, including T-Bone Burnett. In 1993, he released Christmas, which has always worked for me as a Christmas record and as a Coburn record. His strong sense of purpose and faith come through these acoustic versions. We'll start with his version of Adeste Fidelis and pick up the conversation after that. about to start a 50th anniversary tour in December. Uh, How does a 50th anniversary tour differ from other tours from the last decade? I don't expect it's going to differ all that much. (laughs) There might be, uh, um, I mean, I've always done a a kind of cross-section of older material mixed in with the new in all my shows. And, uh, that will be, of course, true. Maybe there'll be a slightly higher proportion of older stuff. I mean, kind of so from over the centuries, as it were. Uh, but, uh, um, and and I anticipate, well, it'll be different stuff. So, I mean, I've made a point of learning a couple of older songs that I have not done for a very long time. So, um, you know, there, there'll be something different for people in that sense, but and, and, and there are new songs as well, too, which may end up in the show. So uh, it'll be, in terms of the actual content, it'll be slightly different from other shows. But it'll be the same basic premise. You know, here's, here's the stuff you feel like you won't, that you got ripped off if you don't hear. And here's, <laughs> and here's everything that I want to do. Right. <laughs> you know, Is it sometimes hard to listen to older songs and connect to who you were at the time when you wrote them? Sometimes. depends on the song. Most songs not. But, uh, um, I mean, it's hard. It's never hard to connect. The songs are like, uh, it's like a photo album of my life in a way. I mean, so going through the old songs really takes me back. There's songs that I wrote back in the day that I wouldn't write now. There's lots of those. But they still are, they still are alive for me, mm-hmm. uh, and the person who wrote them is still in me, you know. Even though it's been added to and, and perhaps subtracted from in some <laughs> ways too, but but uh, uh, by the passage of time. But that, I mean, that's uh, I, to me the job. If I'm performing a song for people, the job is to make it live whether I feel it or not. I mean, it, it, of course, if you're, if you don't, if you really don't feel it, it's, that's hard to do. Uh, and it's, uh, harder. I've never done a show where <clears throat> the whole show was focused on a particular period of, of my songwriting career, so-called, uh, 
so I don't know what that would be like, really. But uh, I know that it's all like wondering where the lines are. I mean, I I don't. I, I have to generate feel the feeling for that song in myself when I perform it. I usually, I mean, I think I'm able to do that uh, because I like the fact that people like the song and I like the fact that that people get into it and sometimes they sing along and that sort of thing. So it makes it uh, easier than if it were just, I would, if I was just tossing it out there, but, uh, but that's as much a product of the fact that I've sung the song so many times. And it's like, I, I'm, I'm sort of not allowed to do a show that that's not in. Right. So that, you know, the, the kinds of songs that fit that category uh, get tiresome at times. And sometimes I've had to let them just lie fallow for a while because I couldn't bring them anything. But, uh, but uh, you know, if I had a rocket launcher like that too, I mean, I, I don't like to go where I was when I wrote that song at all. Uh, and I didn't like it right away. I mean, as soon as I wrote the song, I didn't want to go there. But, but uh, you know, it's one of the ones that people are up, upset if they don't get to hear in a show. So I, it's in most of my shows. There was a while after 9-11 where I didn't do it because it just seemed like the wrong kind of, uh, to be encouraging the wrong kind of sentiment in, in people that were already on the edge of that. Uh, but um, but it's, since then it's come back in. Does your performance get better as you go through a, go through to, go through a tour? Uh, generally, the shows get more relaxed, which is a good thing. Um, and, and everything gets smoother. I mean, that's, that the technical side tends to get smoother and, and all that. So it's, um, it's more evident with a band tour than with the solo shows probably. So when you start touring in December, will you do songs from the uh, Christmas record? Uh, I haven't thought of doing that actually. Um, I guess it makes sense cause it's December, but I've been, I've really been thinking about, you know, kind of what kind of a show I can make out of a 50-year repertoire. Right. It's sort of, that addresses the 50-year factor. Sure. I mean, it isn't it isn't the 50th year anymore. It's really, it's our second attempt at, at the 50th anniversary. <laughs> it's supposed to happen in 2020. You know, so, uh, but, and at the, yeah, so, so yeah. we'll see. I'm hope, hopefully these shows are actually going to happen. Christmas album came out in 93. How did that project start? 
Um, it's something I'd wanted to do for a long time. And uh, we were in the studio in LA doing, um, recording Dark of the Heart, I guess. And uh, we, we, there was this sort of a period between the recording and the mixing. It's a little hazy for me now exactly what order things happened. And we did the tracks for that album in Woodstock. And then we were doing a few overdubs and, and mixing in LA. And uh, uh, we being me and T-Bone Burnett and, uh, you know, the rest of the cast of the album. But, but um, so I was going to be in L.A. How did we do this? I did that because the Christmas album was recorded in Toronto. Actually, I, somewhere it, they, they, they're, they're mixed together in my mind because they happened in the same time period. And I, I, I know that we, we did some recording for the Christmas album in LA with some of the, the extra voices, the Hispanic singers that sing on Rio Rio too, and, and uh, various people that I wanted, Jackson and Brown and, and T-Bone and Sam Phillips, I uh, wanted to get them on the album and they, you know, they were in LA. So we recorded them in LA, but, it, but the bulk of the album was done in Toronto. And it's just something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And then for some reason, on that occasion, there was a budget for it. And I, and I mean, Bernie had, Trinkelstein had a lot to do with, of course, managing the budget side of it. And, and uh, I'm not sure, I, I don't really remember now how that came about, but, but um, it was like, okay, well, you know, I wanted to do this for a long time and I've got the songs together and, I, and, and now's a chance. And we did it, uh, uh, I recorded all the songs myself and then we added people to it. So, which was the practical way to get it done at the time. We didn't have to, um, I didn't have to have, assemble a band and have them learn all the songs, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And we, we brought in, it was kind of the way we did the, the, the very earliest albums, um, except more focused on that, that method of recording. Uh, so you know, it was me and me and a click track basically recording the songs, and, and then everybody came in and played over it. And the the, the guys that came in, uh, well, the, the men and women who came in and played, played great. I mean, they, you you I don't hear that when I listen to the album. Sometimes you do hear that with people's albums when they've done it that way. You can it's pretty obvious, but I don't think that the Christmas album suffers from that. I think that it really all fit together pretty seamlessly. No, I so. agree. How did you uh, decide on what songs to do? Uh, well, I started, I talked about this in the liner notes of the album. I, I started with a little booklet. My dad had made this booklet for me. He, at some point, some, somebody gave him a sample set of Christmas cards, but the, and the cards consisted of the lyrics and, and kind of a lead sheet for, for a bunch of the popular Christmas carols. Oh, cool. Uh, and, um, and he made, he, 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 you know, punched holes in these and put binder rings on them and, and made a little, and made a cardboard cover for it. That was kind of pretty and, and, and gave it to me as a present. This is, I don't know how old I was. I was probably around 12 or 13, something like that. Um, maybe 14. 
anyway. Um, but I'd had this thing the whole time, and, and that became the basis of the album, you know, this little, little town of Bethlehem and, and Silent Night and, and the various other of the familiar songs were in that. Um, and then, I, then it was a question of looking for more stuff, looking for interesting stuff. So I researched it. I mean, I researched, big quotation marks there. I hunted, I hunted around for, for other kinds of material that wasn't that. I mean, I, there were some of those songs I didn't feel I could really do justice to. Um, I wouldn't have done uh, It Came Upon the Midnight Clear had I not heard Sam Phillips' translation of it into a minor key that's at the, at the closing credits of a movie called The Midnight Clear. It's a, it's a war movie uh, that she, she did that song for. And, uh, and it's, it was so effective, in, both in the movie and, and as her version of the song, with it, because making it minor like that, because the song is, is very... It's an anti-war song, basically. It's a, you know, it's a, it must have been written during the First World War. I, I don't remember now, um, but it talks about the, you know, sound of cannons and all that uh, in the verses that we don't normally sing, and uh, so it, that was that became a contender right away as soon as I heard that. Like T Bone, in fact, probably said, "Oh, you should hear Sam's version of Midnight Clear," but you know, and and. That's what we ended up doing. Um, the uh, um, some of the other stuff uh, down in Yon Forest. I mean, I was looking through books of of Christmas carols. There was a, a Penguin book of Christmas carols, paperback with all these obscure pieces in it. I think I think that one came from there, and um, and. Uh, one that everybody plays all the time. <laughs> I can't think of the name of it. Ah. Uh, um, I, I, I don't, I, yeah, I, it'll come to me when I'm not thinking about it, but it's, it's the one that people seem to have attached themselves most to on the album. Um, but that and, and uh, there was the, the, the song, it was kind of ragtime Christmas song early on one Christmas morn that's, uh, was sung by Frankie Halfpint Jackson and his his sanctified singers. Wow! I, I didn't I didn't know this until after I recorded the song. But Colin Linden, who's a, who's steeped in blues lore, you know, and and all of the stuff black music of that period, um, said, "Oh yeah, Frankie Jackson was a famous cross dresser. Like he that was his gig, right? When he used to perform dressed as a woman, uh, uh. <laughs> Frankie Halfpint Jackson, and and." Uh, so, but here he's doing a, a religious song, and it's it's so irreligious. And his version of it, I mean, it's a little more so in mine, but not much. I mean, because it's just like who would think? Who would think of writing a, a ragtime Christmas, Christmas song about Jesus? You know, yeah. like that being born, and, and and yet it's a great song.
was the album your most overt expression of Christian Christian faith at that point? The Christmas album? Yeah, yeah. I would say. Pretty overt. I mean, yeah. There's no, I mean, you, people sing Christmas songs who don't, uh, who at least don't announce the fact that they have Christian beliefs. I, I, you know, I mean, I can picture Diana Ross singing White Christmas, uh, for instance, or, or, but, but, and, and various other songs. I mean, I've heard you, you hear, you hear it all the time. You hear it all, all Christmas season in the supermarkets. There's people singing Christmas songs, both secular and religious, who, you don't associate with spirituality sure. uh, in a particular way. I don't know the people, so I don't know what they actually believe, but, but it's not obvious in the music, but, but, uh, uh, but, you know, yeah, for me, I mean, I, I have not hidden uh, my religious inclinations over the years and, and uh, you know, this is, it's about as explicit as I've ever gotten. Sure. Uh, with the exception of one or two of my own songs. Right. And there's a song, the, the, one of the songs on Nothing But a Burning Light, uh, Cry of a Tiny Babe, could have easily been on the Christmas album, except we had just recorded it on one album back. Uh, right? uh, so uh, so that, that is not a viable contender. But, but uh, uh, and that's pretty explicit also, but, but uh, it's... Um, I mean, for me, the Christmas album—it's—it is a. It, I wanted it to be a spiritual album. I—I I, I purposely avoided doing songs, uh, you know, like chestnuts roasting on an open fire, or or uh, have yourself a merry little Christmas, which are beautiful songs. Like, there's nothing wrong with those songs as songs, but but I didn't want to do secular Christmas songs. Uh, for me, Christmas ha- has. Well, in the past, at least, I mean, and less so, you know, through more of my adulthood. But when I was a kid, Christmas was such an exciting period of time, not because of anything spiritual, but because of the spirit of Christmas. Uh, the, you know, the, the, just all of the, the sort of the dinners, the family gatherings, the, 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 um, the giving of presents and the getting of presents in particular, of course, when you're a kid, that's a big deal. And, and, uh, but it was always an exciting time and, and a good time. Everybody's in a good mood. And I mean, I, I had a conversation with T-Bone about this at one point, say talking about, I was enthusing like this over my memories of Christmas. And he said, well, Christmas for me was hiding under the kitchen table while mom and dad fought. You know, I, I think, oh, geez, well, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, felt, I felt bad when I heard that, but, it, but, but, you know, so obviously it's not everybody's experience of Christmas, but it was mine. And, and that, uh, that motivated the, the desire to do an album like that as much as anything. But, uh, but that said, I, I wanted it to be an album of spiritually oriented songs. Yeah. yeah. Of which some of some of the Christmas songs around are some of the most beautiful hymns ever.
Finally, Nashville-based Americana band Twangtown Paramours recently released a new album, Double Down on a Bad Thing. And to get a little extra attention during the holiday season, they recorded a Christmas single, My Gingerbread Man. Recently, I talked to Mary Beth Zamer and Mike T. Lewis, the Twangtown Paramours, about their new song, new music, and Christmas music as a marketing move. We'll start with the title track from the new album, then get to the conversation when we come back. So you're in the process of releasing your third album, right? Double Down on a Bad Thing? Yes. Yes. And that's coming out in February of next year. Yes. Can you explain how the rollout of an album has changed since you started as a band in like 2010 or so, if I remember that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, well, you want me to go first? Yes, sweetheart. Okay. Go ahead. Um, well, way back when in ancient times, like 2010... <laughs> Um, we got a radio promoter, we put out a physical album, and we walked away. <laughs> we let them do all the work. We just played. Right, right. Yeah. But now. But now we got more serious with this album, first of all, because, frankly, I like it better. Yeah. Um, it's kind of I've been really wanting to do. Our other stuff was was much more laid back and acoustic and, and folk and serious and there were a lot of dead people songs in there. And um, it's just, this is more about, you know, positivity and fun and energy. So um, I, maybe because we were more enthusiastic about it, uh, we put more effort into it. So what we started to do is first of all, we just released uh, a digital single to uh, Spotify. And what do you call them? The digital platforms? Yes. All the digital platforms. Okay. So we did that on September 17th. The first song is called Talk About Peace, which is kind of an anthem for people to take action rather than always be talking about stuff. You know, that's um, people are always going to church and and asking forgiveness for all the stuff they just did the night before. And I just figured, <laughs> well, you know, what, <laughs> what if you guys had this, you know, these higher ideals on your mind most of the time and actually acted on them. Right. And that's pretty much the song. So that's the first song that came out. And so it went to Spotify. We have um, uh, a consulting manager who is helping us find our way through the digital world, because to me, it's a great mystery. <laughs> Not so, to you so much, though. No. So the big difference for this record was we put out singles ahead of the album. Right. Yeah. Um, which we're not used to doing, uh, and we didn't do on either of the other records. Sure. We just released the records as one release. Right. And so promoting each individual song uh, 
uh, each individual single and doing videos for them and uh, as we go versus doing the record, that has been a big switch for us. Sure. Um, and it's been fun and it's been interesting and we've cussed at our computer a lot ah, um, ah, <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Uh, to get all the stuff going to make it happen. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So we have, but we do have this great consulting manager who has been helping us kind of every step of the way. And she has made everything easier, even for, for um, idiots like us. <laughs> <technologically> <laughs> challenged. Yeah. We can run a studio, but don't ask us about the digital platforms. Right. Yeah. You're looking at our studio right here in the background. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that all makes sense. It's in the real world, but the, but the stuff in the digital domain to me, is, it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, there's a whole story of, you know, you want people to follow you. And I'm thinking, why would I want anybody to follow me? And I'm not interested in following them. I just want to hear their music. It's either right. good or it's bad. Man, I want to say now, now it had to be 10 years ago. I, I had an interview with Wayne Coyne from Flaming Lips. Uh, and at the time, and he was saying that, you know, when they started, that all promotion started the day the album dropped. The album right. drops and then everything happens. Right. And I think I interviewed him around the time of Embryonic. And he was saying that, that at that point, the album release was the end of the promotion cycle. And mm -hmm. that all everything that happened happened before then. Um, and, and it does require real, I mean, there's that, that, that in itself is a mass, massive change in how we think about things. But the mm -hmm. other thing is you realize the difference is how do you stay present in people's lives and people's ears? And if you go away for a year, someone else is very happy to get in your space and to occupy the space that you are. Yeah. Many, yeah. many thousands of someone else's. Yes. Are <laughs> yeah. 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 True. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, our, our, so our process is the, the digital part of the program here is is before we get to radio real radio and that happened the first single actually to radio will be the christmas song our bonus track and that's going to happen in november that will be uh promoted to uh terrestrial radio oh good for you yeah and then and then in uh in early february we'll we'll you know go with the album tracks and probably a single to uh AAA, uh, Americana, and blues stations. Oh, great. Yeah. So, let's, let's get to that, but we should actually let y'all tell, what is the Twangtown Paramours story? Well, uh, Twangtown Paramours is uh, a name we came up with years ago. Uh, Twangtown is a nickname for Nashville, which is where we live. And where we, we met. Ah. Exactly. Okay. And Paramours just sounded cool. Well, yeah. actually... <laughs> Paramours are illicit lovers, but we're matrimores, so yeah. there's nothing particularly illicit about us. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's that's the name of the band. That's that's where they came from. And you know, we um, if you want a story, I mean, the story is that at first we were an acoustic duo, and then we did our albums with uh, you know friends of ours who were great studio players. They came into our studio and played. And then this uh, this most recent album is had to be done well mostly here in our studio, but it also had to be done remotely because during the pandemic we couldn't have people here. Sure. So then the good news is I'm originally from New York, 
And so I've got all kinds of friends up there uh, who I've played with before and uh, written with before. And the, the people I had to pick had great studios. And so they literally mailed it in. I had to work with them. I had to work with people who I kind of had a little ESP with, you know, and uh, who I knew could play great and also record really well. Um, and we're great people, very nice people. Sure. Um, but that's about the record. He's asking about how we got started. Oh, well, I'm saying how we story. got finished. Okay. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I, let's keep going on that because that's actually interesting to me. And because and, and, actually, I got to say, it's been a part of, you know, kind of a part of a theme of the uh, of, of the last year of, of this podcast has been how often sort right. of COVID was in some way a part of the process. Because, I mean, it's not possible, you know, COVID is just a part of our lives now, much less part of our musical lives. And right. and I was talking, I guess last year I was talking with, earlier this year, with guys from uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, mm -hmm. part of the, sort of part of the young sort of Cajun music and roots music scene in, in Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And a number of them got together to make a Christmas record uh, late last year. And it was largely because they could, that they right. would normally all be busy and all off on different projects. But mm -hmm. because of COVID, they were actually all around, uh, around the city and were available for a change. And, cool. and I'd imagine, and so in, in your case, it kind of forced you to reach out to musicians you might not have otherwise got or, or might not have otherwise reached out to if you had to actually all get to the same physical location. Right. In fact, some of the, a few of the people who we normally use are wonderful players were not, did not have uh, appropriate studios and weren't good engineers. And so one of the great lessons for professional musicians during the pandemic is you've got to put on some more hats. You can't just be a great player and a good communicator. You also have to be able to record your music because you may have to send it across the world or across the country or in some cases across town for us. I mean, there was one piano player on our on our record I haven't seen in a long time. He lives five miles from here. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally. Yeah. Yeah. That's not an exaggeration. You know, and that's... Um, and, and, but then we also had people up in New York State, and we had Sean Pelton from New York City uh, play drums on all the album, you know, every track. And so that was a, a wonderful treat to have him on the record. Um, yeah, it was just, it was just different. It was, it was pluses and minuses. You know, we had to not use some great players who are friends, but then I got an excuse to use other people who I've worked with and just really love. And well, I think it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I think we recorded in a different order because, mm -hmm. because I was trying, usually we just do a, I just do a scratch vocal and people come into the studio and uh, we record the instruments around the scratch. But because we were doing, we were sending it off to people and we wanted them to know what I was actually going to be singing um, so they could play to accompany us. Um, most of the vocals were done, the final vocal, including the background vocals, were done when we sent them off to the other guys so they could because we couldn't talk to them like you couldn't usually they're in the studio and you can say hey try this try this try that right. 
but they weren't here. Right. So we had to give them what we thought we absolutely were going to be doing so they could create their part around that. And that was different. Yeah. That's where the ESP came in because there wasn't that kind of give and take. And of course I missed that, but it also meant we had to have top notch people who I knew pretty well and who I knew I had a pretty good idea of what they were going to do in a particular situation. Did you um, have people surprise you? Yes. I'll tell a, you who surprises. In a good way. Yeah. Um, so on the Christmas tune, there's a guy, the piano player, this guy named Ed Alstrom, who I'd worked with many years ago. And he is, uh, amongst other things, one of the organists at Yankee Stadium. Wow. But, but he's also played piano, you know, with everybody from Leonard Bernstein to Odetta to, you know, let me just see, I have a list here. Bette Midler, Chuck Berry, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Zubin Mehta. Um, yeah, Donald Fagan, John Sebastian, the list kind of goes on and on. And um, I hadn't worked with him remotely before. In fact, I'd had him play other instruments other than piano. And um, I needed just a certain little retro vibe. And um, and he, he sent it to us. I don't know how he did it. Um, he knocked it out of the park. He didn't, I mean. There's just a feel to it. Yeah. This is a guy who has an internal clock. Right. And um, that's magical when you find those people. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you're as a part of trying to roll out the record and getting make people aware of which of the new project that you have a Christmas song that you have coming out uh, coming out in November, I think you said. Yes. So what's the story behind that song? Well, um, you it's, know, we, we it's PG rated. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we say it's it's forty uh, percent nice and sixty percent naughty. Okay. Yeah. So we were, you know, we're celebrating Christmas a few years ago, and and um, had a few drinks, and we're watching It's a Wonderful Life, and listening to Alvin and the Chipmunks. You know, Christmas don't be late, and it kind of occurred to us like, well, what if Alvin didn't really want it? hula hoop he had some other stuff in mind uh, you know uh, 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 uh. And, and what if, if donna reed and and jimmy stewart weren't quite as polite and you know squeaky clean as they were back in 1939 what would they uh, uh. be doing right and we were making gingerbread so um i don't know um it's it's funny because people ask me specifically how did you write such and such a song and the real answer is the specifics of it usually I don't remember because if I'm lucky, I kind of get in a little zone and, and uh, just sort of go with it. Uh, but that's what I remember about the beginning of that. Song. Right. We do have a family tradition of making gingerbread houses Right. at Christmas time. There's been a couple times where they've condemned, they were condemned because they fell in. <laughs> <laughs> what we do um, as the family, when our kids were, as they've grown up, we, we do make gingerbread houses every year. And so that was, uh, and we play Led Zeppelin while we make the gingerbread house. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> so the gingerbread was key. Like we knew we had to write a song about gingerbread because that's one of our like main family traditions is the gingerbread. True. Right. So the song is called My Gingerbread Man. And mm -hmm. I guess for, well, actually to sort of ask a simple question, why record a Christmas song? Um, you know, the, I guess the answer to that is why write 
anything or record anything. It's just, it's what we really felt like doing. And there was no real reason other, you know, it's not like, hmm, I think this is what people will like. No, it's just sort of what we felt like doing at that moment. Um, and it's fun. Like it was a, it's a fun Christmas song. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's kind of sexy and uh, it's, got, it, it's sassy. It's a combination of uh, somewhere. It, it should, you know, my dream would be that we fall into, fall into the playlist right between Brenda Lee's, you know, rocking around the Christmas tree and Bobby Helm, um, you know, and the chipmunks and blue Christmas. It's sort of, it's made to be like the rest of the record, uh, like a retro early 1960s sounding thing. That's upbeat and fun. And um, it, it's, it's emblematic of, of the record itself. And that's, that's our Christmas bonus track. Yeah. What are you, are y'all Christmas, are y'all Christmas music people? Yeah, we like yes, Christmas music. Yes, we love yeah. it. Yes. We play it like the Charlie Brown Christmas record. We play that a Elvis lot. And, um, the, uh... I love Ella Fitzgerald. So we have the Rat Pack and Ella playing all the time at Christmas. Um, just, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know. It's fun. Yeah. We're musicians and that's what we like to do at Christmas, you know, listen to music and make, make gingerbread. Damn gingerbread houses. <laughs> yeah. Ha, ha. Thanks to Mary Beth and Mike, Bruce, and Jose. I'll have more with all of them next year, along with the complete interviews from last week's guests, including Peter Zaremba of the Flesh Tones and Susan Cowsill. One of the joys of this gig is having good conversations with people and covering some real ground in some cases. When I circle back to these conversations next year, I promise you they'll be worth the time. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. Thanks to carfloats.com, car-floats.com, for the support. If you haven't already done so, please like, follow, subscribe, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your weekly podcast feed. If you listen through Apple, I won't say no to a five-star review. All these things help people find out what's going on over here so they can join us. We'll wrap today with something semi-topical. Our local nursery said that there will be a Christmas tree shortage this year due to wildfires. And I've also seen reports that confirm that. Between wildfires and supply chain issues, Christmas trees may not be as easy to get this year as in years past. With that in mind, let's finish with a classic, O Tannenbaum by the Vince Guaraldi Trio from A Charlie Brown Christmas. Talk to you next week. (laughs) ¶¶